fear, yes, any kind of fear, is action. Dread making a certain phone call? Make it and dread disappears. Put it off and it will get harder and harder to make. Dread going to a doctor for a checkup? Go and your worry vanishes. Chances are nothing serious is wrong with you, and if there is, you know where you stand. Put off that checkup, and you feed your fear until it may grow so strong that you actually are sick. Dread discussing a problem with your superior? Discuss it and discover how those worries are conquered. Build confidence. Destroy fear through action. Start your mental engine mechanically. An aspiring young writer who wasn't experiencing success made this confession. My trouble is, whole days and weeks pass that I can't get a thing written. You see, he remarked, writing is creative. You've got to be inspired. Your spirit must move you. True, writing is creative, but here's how another creative man, also a writer, explained his secret for producing quantities of successful material. I use a mind-force technique, he began. I've got deadlines to meet, and I can't wait for my spirit to move me. I've got to move my spirit. Here's how my method works. I make myself sit down at my desk. Then I pick up a pencil and go through mechanical motions of writing. I put down anything. I doodle. I get my fingers and arm in motion, and sooner or later, without my being conscious of it, my mind gets on the right track. Sometimes, of course, I get ideas out of the blue when I'm not trying to write, he went on. But these are just bonuses. Most of the good ideas come from just getting to work. Action must precede action. That's a law of nature. Nothing starts itself, not even the dozens of mechanical gadgets we use daily. Your home is heated automatically, but you must select, take action, the temperature you want. Your car shifts gears automatically only after you have set the right lever. The same principle applies to mind action. You get your mind in gear to make it produce for you. A young branch sales manager for a door-to-door -door sales organization explained how he trained his sales force the mechanical way to start each day earlier and more successfully. There's a tremendous resistance to the door-to-door -door salesman, as anyone who has ever sold house-to-house -house knows, he commented. And it's hard, even for the veteran salesman, to make that first call in the morning. He knows the odds are pretty good that he'll get some pretty rough treatment before the day is over. So it's natural for him to put off getting started in the morning. He'll drink a couple of extra cups of coffee, maybe cruise around the neighborhood a while, or do a dozen little things to postpone that first call. I train each new man this way. I explain to him that the only way to start is to start. Don't deliberate. Don't postpone getting started. Do this. Just park your car, get your sample case, walk to the door, ring the bell, smile, say good morning, and make your presentation, all mechanically, without a lot of conscious thought. Start making calls this way and you break the ice. By the second or third call, your mind is sharp and your presentations become effective. A humorist once said the most difficult problem in life was getting out of a warm bed into a cold room, and he had a point. The longer you lie there and think how unpleasant it will be to get up, the more difficult it becomes. Even in such a simple operation as this, mechanical action, just throwing off the covers and putting your feet on the floor, defeats dread. The point is clear. People who get things done in this world don't wait for the spirit to move them. They move the spirit. Try these two exercises. 1. Use the mechanical way to accomplish simple but sometimes unpleasant business and household chores. Rather than think about the unpleasant features of the task, jump right in and get going without a lot of deliberation. Perhaps the most unpleasant household task to most women is washing dishes. My mother is no exception. 
but she has mastered a mechanical approach to dispensing with this task quickly, so she can return to things she likes to do. As she leaves the table, she always mechanically picks up several dishes, and without thinking about the task ahead, just gets started. In just a few minutes, she is through. Doesn't this beat stacking dishes and dreading the unpleasant inevitable? Do this today. Pick the one thing you like to do least. Then, without letting yourself deliberate on or dread the task, do it. That's the most efficient way to handle chores. 2. Next, use the mechanical way to create ideas, map out plans, solve problems, and do other work that requires top mental performance. Rather than wait for the spirit to move you, sit down and move your spirit. Here's a special technique guaranteed to help you. Use a pencil and paper. A simple pencil is the greatest concentration tool money can buy. If I had to choose between an ultra-fancy, deeply carpeted, beautifully decorated soundproof office and a pencil and paper, I'd choose the pencil and paper every time. With a pencil and paper, you can tie your mind to a problem. When you write a thought on paper, your full attention is automatically focused on that thought. That's because the mind is not designed to think one thought and write another at the same time. When you write on paper, you write on your mind, too. Tests prove conclusively that you remember something much longer and much more exactly if you write the thought on paper. And once you master the pencil and paper technique for concentration, you can think in noisy or other distracting situations. When you want to think, start writing or doodling or diagramming. It's an excellent way to move your spirit. Now is the magic word of success. Tomorrow, next week, later, sometime, someday, often as not are synonyms for the failure word, never. Lots of good dreams never come true because we say, I'll start someday, when we should say, I'll start now, right now. Take one example, saving money. Just about everybody agrees that saving money is a good idea. But just because it's a good idea doesn't mean many folks follow an organized savings and investment program. Many people have intentions to save, but only relatively few act on these intentions. Here's how one young couple got into gear with a regular wealth accumulation program. Bill's take-home income was $1,000 a month, but he and his wife Janet spent $1,000 each month, too. Both wanted to save, but there were always reasons why they felt they couldn't begin. For years, they had promised themselves, we'll start when we get a raise, when we've caught up with our installments, when we're over the hump, next month, next year. Finally, Janet got disgusted with their failure to save. She said to Bill, look, do we want to save or don't we? He replied, of course we do but you know as well as I, we can't put aside anything now. But for once, Janet was in a do-or-die mood. We've been telling ourselves for years we're going to start a savings program. We don't save because we think we can't. Now let's start thinking we can. I saw an ad today that shows if we'd save just $100 a month, in 15 years, we'd have $18,000 plus $6,600 accumulated interest. The ad also said it's easier to spend what's left over after savings than it is to save what's left over after spending. If you're game, let's start with 10% of your pay and let's save off the top. We may eat crackers and milk before the month's up, but if we have to, we will. Bill and Janet were cramped for a few months, but soon they were adjusted to their new budget. Now they feel it's just as much fun to spend money on savings as it is to spend it on something else. Want to write a note to a friend? Do it now. Got an idea you think would help your business? Present it now. Live the advice of Benjamin Franklin. Don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Remember, thinking in terms of now gets things accomplished. 
but thinking in terms of someday or sometime usually means failure. One day, I stopped in to see an old business friend. She had just returned from a conference with several of her executives. The moment I looked at her, I could tell there was something she wanted to get off her chest. She had the look of a woman who had suffered real disappointment. You know, she said, I called that conference this morning because I wanted some help on a proposed policy change. But what kind of help did I get? I had six men in there, and only one of them had anything to contribute. Two others talked, but what they said was just an echo of what I had said. It was like talking with a bunch of vegetables. I confess it's hard for me to find out what those fellows think. Really, she went on, you'd think those fellows would speak up and let me know what they think. After all, it directly affects each of them. My friend didn't get help in the conference. But had you roamed the hall after the meeting broke up, you'd have heard her junior associates making remarks like, I felt like saying, why didn't someone suggest, I don't think, we ought to go ahead. So, often the vegetables, those who have nothing to say in the conference room, are full of talk after the meeting, when what they've got to say won't make any difference. They're suddenly full of life when it's too late. Business executives want comment. The fellow who hides his light under a bushel hurts himself. Get the speak-up habit. Each time you speak up, you strengthen yourself. Come forward with your constructive ideas. We all know how many college students prepare their assignments. With fine intentions, Joe College sets aside a whole evening for some concentrated study. Here is a general pattern of how, too often, the evening is spent. Joe's ready to begin studying at 7 p.m., but his dinner seems just a bit heavy, so he decides to get in a little TV. A little turns out to be an hour's worth, since the program was pretty good. At 8 p.m., he sits down at his desk, but gets right back up because he just remembered he promised to call his girl. This shoots another 40 minutes. He hadn't talked to her all day. An incoming call takes another 20 minutes. On his way back to his desk, Joe is drawn into a ping-pong game. Another hour gone. The ping-pong makes him feel sweaty, so he takes a shower. Next, he needs a snack. The combined effect of the ping-pong and the shower have made him hungry. And so the evening planned with good intentions drifts away. Finally, at 1 a.m., he opens the book but he's too sleepy to absorb the subject. Finally, he surrenders completely. Next morning, he tells the professor, I hope you give me a break. I studied till 2 a.m. for this exam. Joe College didn't get into action because he spent too much time getting ready to get into action. And Joe College isn't alone in being a victim of overpreparedness. Joe Salesman, Joe Executive, Joe Professional Worker, Josephine Housewife. They all often try to build strength and get ready with office chats, coffee breaks, sharpening pencils, reading, personal business, getting the desk cleared off, TV, and dozens of other little escape devices. But there's a way to break this habit. Tell yourself, I'm in condition right now to begin. I can't gain a thing by putting it off. I'll use the get-ready time and energy to get going instead. What we want more than anything else in our business, an executive in a machine tool company said in an address to a group of sales executives, is more people who get sound ideas and then push them through. There's not one job in our production and marketing setup that can't be done better, a lot better. I don't want to infer that we're not doing a good job now. We are. But like all progressive companies, we need new products, new markets, new and more efficient ways of doing things. We depend on people with initiative. They're the ball carriers on our team. Initiative is a special kind of action. It's doing something worthwhile without being told to do it. The person with initiative has a standing invitation to join the high-income brackets in every business and profession.
The director of marketing research in a medium-sized drug manufacturing firm told me how he got to be a director of marketing research. It's a good lesson in the power of initiative. Five years ago, I got an idea, he told me. I was working then as a sort of missionary salesman, calling on wholesalers. I discovered that one thing we lacked was facts about the consumers we wanted to buy our drug line. I talked about the need for market research to everyone here. At first I got only deaf ears because management couldn't see the need for it. I was pretty much obsessed with the idea of marketing research in our company, so I sort of took the bull by the horns. I asked and got permission to prepare a monthly report on facts of drug marketing. I collected information from every source I could find. I kept on with this, and pretty soon management and the other salesmen found themselves really interested in what I was doing. Just one year after I started crusading for research, I was relieved of my regular duties and asked to concentrate on developing my ideas. The rest, he continued, was just natural development. Now I've got two assistants, a secretary, and about three times the yearly income I had five years ago. Here are two special exercises for developing the initiative habit. 1. Be a crusader. When you see something that you believe ought to be done, pick up the ball and run. A new subdivision not far from where I live was about two-thirds built when expansion came almost to a standstill. A few families with a don't-care attitude had moved in. This prompted several of the finest families in the area to sell their homes at a loss and move on. As so often happens, the do-care families caught the don't-care attitude from their don't-care neighbors. Everyone, that is, except Harry L. Harry, did care, and he decided to crusade for a fine neighborhood. Harry began by calling together some friends. He pointed out that this subdivision had tremendous potential, but that something must be done now or the area would soon be a strictly second-class neighborhood. Harry's enthusiasm and initiative quickly won support. Soon there were clean-up-the-vacant-lots projects. Garden clubs were organized. A massive tree-planting project was started. A playground was built for the youngsters. A community swimming pool was constructed. The don't-care families became eager supporters. The whole subdivision took on new life and new sparkle. It's really a pleasure now to drive through that community. It shows what a crusader can do. Do you feel your business should develop a new department, make a new product, or in some other way expand? Well then, crusade for it. Feel your church needs a new building? Crusade for it. Would you like your children's school to have better equipment? Crusade and get it for them. And you can bank on this. While crusades may start out as one-man crusades, if the idea behind the enterprise is good, soon you'll have lots of support. Be an activationist and crusade. 2. Be a volunteer. Each of us has been in situations in which we wanted to volunteer for some activity but didn't. Why? Because of fear. Not fear that we couldn't accomplish the task, but rather fear of what our associates would say. The fear of being laughed at, of being called an eager beaver, of being accused of bucking for a raise holds many people back. It's natural to want to belong, to be accepted, to have group approval. But ask yourself, which group do I want to have accept me? The group that laughs because it is secretly jealous, or the group that is making progress by doing things? The right choice is obvious. The volunteer stands out. He receives special attention. Most important of all, he gives himself an opportunity to show he has special ability and ambition by volunteering. By all means, volunteer for those special assignments. Think about the leaders you know in business, the military, your community. Do they fit the description of activationist, or would you say they are passivationists? Ten times out of ten, they're activationists, people who do things. 
The fellow who stands on the sidelines, who holds off, who is passive, does not lead. But the doer, the fellow who thinks action, finds others want to follow him. People place confidence in the fellow who acts. They naturally assume he knows what he is doing. I've never heard anyone complimented and praised because he doesn't disturb anyone, he doesn't take action, or he waits until he's told what to do. Have you? Grow the action habit. Practice these key points. 1. Be an activationist. Be someone who does things. Be a doer, not a donter. 2. Don't wait until conditions are perfect. They never will be. Expect future obstacles and difficulties and solve them as they arise. 3. Remember, ideas alone won't bring success. Ideas have value only when you act upon them. 4. Use action to cure fear and gain confidence. Do what you fear, and fear disappears. Just try it and see. 5. Start your mental engine mechanically. Don't wait for the spirit to move you. Take action, dig in, and you move the spirit. 6. Think in terms of now. Tomorrow, next week, later, and similar words often are synonymous with the failure word never. Be an I'm starting right now kind of person. 7. Get down to business, pronto. Don't waste time getting ready to act. Start acting instead. 8. Seize the initiative. Be a crusader. Pick up the ball and run. Be a volunteer. Show that you have ability and ambition to do. Get in gear and go. Chapter 11 How to Turn Defeat into Victory Social workers and others who work on Skid Row find many differences in age, religious faith, education, and background among the tragic souls who have dropped into America's gutters. Some of these citizens are surprisingly young. Others are old. A sprinkling are college graduates. A few have essentially no formal education. Some are married. Others are not. But the people on Skid Row do have something in common. Each one is defeated, whipped, beaten. Each one has encountered situations that conquered him. Each is eager, even anxious, to tell you about the situation that wrecked him, about his own private Waterloo. These situations cover the waterfront of human experience, from my wife ran out on me, to I lost everything I had and had no place else to go, to I did a couple of things that made me a social outcast, so I came down here. When we move up from Skid Row into the dominion of Mr. and Mrs. Average American, we see obvious differences in living habits. But again, we discover that Mr. Mediocre gives essentially the same reasons to explain his mediocrity as Mr. Skid Row gave to explain his complete collapse. Inside, Mr. Mediocre feels defeated. He has unhealed wounds suffered in situations that beat him. Now he is super cautious. He plods along, ducking the thrill of living victoriously, discontented with himself. He feels beaten, but tries hard to endure the sentence of mediocrity that fate has handed him. He, too, has surrendered to defeat, but in a reasonably clean, socially accepted way. Now, when we climb upstairs into the uncrowded world of success, we again discover people from every possible background. Corporate executives, leading ministers, government officials, top men in every field, we discover come from poor homes, rich homes, broken homes, cotton patches, cornfields, and slums. These people, who lead every branch of our society, have experienced every tough situation you can describe. It is possible to match every Mr. Skid Row with a Mr. Mediocre and a Mr. Success on every score, age, intelligence, background, nationality, you name it, 
with one exception. The one thing you can't match them on is their response to defeat. When the fellow we call Mr. Skid Row got knocked down, he failed to get up again. He just lay there, splattered out. Mr. Mediocre got up to his knees, but he crawled away, and when out of sight, ran in the opposite direction, so he'd be sure never to take a beating again. But Mr. Success reacted differently when he got knocked down. He bounced up, learned a lesson, forgot the beating, and moved upward. One of my closest friends is an exceptionally successful management consultant. When you walk into his office, you feel that you are really uptown. The fine furniture, the carpeting, the busy people, the important clients, all tell you his company is prosperous. A cynic might say, it must have taken a real con man to put across an operation like this. But the cynic would be wrong. It didn't take a con man. And it didn't take a brilliant man or a wealthy man or a lucky man. All, and I hesitate to use the word all because all means so much sometimes, all it took was a persistent man who never thought he was defeated. Behind this prosperous and respected company is the story of a man fighting, battling his way upward, losing ten years' savings in his first six months in business, living in his office several months because he lacked money to pay rent on an apartment, turning down numerous good jobs because he wanted more to stay with his idea and make it work, hearing prospects for his service say no a hundred times as often as they said yes. During the seven unbelievably hard years it took him to succeed, I never heard my friend complain once. He'd explain, Dave, I'm learning. This is competitive business, and because it's intangible, it's hard to sell. But I'm learning how. And he did. Once I told my friend that this experience must be taking a lot out of him, but he replied, No, it's not taking something out of me. It's putting something into me instead. Check the lives of the people in Who's Who in America, and you'll find that those who have succeeded in a major way have been pounded by losing situations. Each person in this elite corps of successful men has encountered opposition, discouragement, setbacks, personal misfortune. Read the biographies and autobiographies of great people. And again, you discover that each of these people could have surrendered to setbacks many times. Or do this. Learn the background of the president of your company or the mayor of your city, or select any person you consider a real success. When you probe, you'll discover the individual has overcome big, real obstacles. It is not possible to win high-level success without meeting opposition, hardship, and setback. But it is possible to use setbacks to propel you forward. Let's see how. I saw some commercial airline statistics recently showing that there is only one fatality per 10 billion miles flown. Air travel is a magnificently safe way to go these days. Unfortunately, air accidents still occur. But when they do... The Civil Aviation Administration is on the scene quickly to find out what caused the crash. Fragments of metal are picked up from miles around and pieced together. A variety of experts reconstruct what probably happened. Witnesses and survivors are interviewed. The investigation goes on for weeks, months, until the question, what caused this crash, is answered. Once the CAA has the answer, Immediate steps are taken to prevent a similar accident from happening again. If the crash was caused by a structural defect, other planes of that type must have that defect corrected. Or if certain instruments are found faulty, corrections must be made. Literally hundreds of safety devices on modern aircraft have resulted from CAA investigations. The CAA studies setbacks to pave the way to safer air travel, and it's obvious that their efforts pay off. Doctors use setbacks to pave the way to better health and longer life. Often, when a patient dies for an uncertain reason, 
doctors perform a post-mortem to find out why. In this way, they learn more about the functioning of the human body, and lives of other people are saved. A sales executive friend of mine devotes one entire sales meeting a month to helping his salesmen discover why they lost important sales. The lost sale is reconstructed and carefully examined. In this way, the salesman learns how to avoid losing similar sales in the future. The football coach who wins more games than he loses goes over the details of each game with his team to point out their mistakes. Some coaches have movies made of each game so the team can literally see its bad moves. The purpose? To play the next game better. CAA officials, successful sales executives, physicians, football coaches, and professionals in every field follow this success principle. Salvage something from every setback. When a setback hits us personally, our first impulse is often to become so emotionally upset that we fail to learn the lesson. Professors know that a student's reaction to a failing grade provides a clue to his success potential. When I was a professor at Wayne State University in Detroit some years ago, I had no choice but to turn in a failing grade for a graduating senior. This was a real blow to the student. He had already made graduation plans, and canceling was embarrassing. He was left with two alternatives, retake and pass the course and receive his degree at a later graduation, or quit school without earning a degree. I expected that the student would be disappointed, perhaps even somewhat belligerent, when he learned of his setback. I was right. After I explained that his work was far below passing standards, the student admitted that he hadn't put forth a serious effort in the course. But, he continued, my past record is at least average. Can't you consider that? I pointed out that I could not, because we measure performance one course at a time. I added that rigid academic codes prohibited changing grades for any reason other than an honest mistake on the part of the professor. Then the student, realizing that all avenues toward a grade change were closed, became quite angry. Professor, he said, I could name fifty people in this city who've succeeded in a big way without taking this course or even knowing about it. What's so blasted important about this course? Why should a few bad marks in one course keep me from getting my degree? Thank God, he added, they don't look at things on the outside like you professors do. After that remark, I paused for about forty-five seconds. I've learned that when you've been sniped at, one fine way to prevent a war of words is to take a long pause before answering. Then I said to my student friend, Much of what you say is true. There are many, many highly successful people who know absolutely nothing about the subject matter in this course. And it is possible for you to win success without this knowledge. In the total scheme of life, this course content won't make or break you but your attitude toward this course may. What do you mean by that, he asked. Just this, I answered. Outside, they grade you just as we grade you. What counts there just as what counts here is doing the job. Outside, they won't promote you or pay you more for doing second-class work. I paused again to make certain the point got through. Then I said, May I make a suggestion? You're highly disappointed now. I can appreciate how you feel. And I don't think any less of you if you're a little sore at me. But look at this experience positively. There's a tremendously important lesson here. If you don't produce, you don't get where you want to go. Learn this lesson, and five years from now you'll regard it as one of the most profitable lessons you learned in all the time you invested here. I was glad when I learned a few days later that this student had re-enrolled for the course. This time he passed with flying colors. Afterward, he made a special call to see me to let me know how much he had appreciated our earlier discussion. I learned something from flunking your course the first time, he said. It may sound odd, but you know, Professor, now I'm glad I did not pass the first time. 
We can turn setbacks into victories. Find the lesson, apply it, and then look back on defeat and smile. Moviegoers will never forget the great Lionel Barrymore. In 1936, Mr. Barrymore broke his hip. The fracture never healed. Most people thought Mr. Barrymore was finished, but not Mr. Barrymore. He used the setback to pave the way to even greater acting success. For the next 18 years, despite pain that never abated, he played dozens of successful roles in a wheelchair. On March 15, 1945, W. Colvin Williams was walking behind a tank in France. The tank hit a mine, exploded, and permanently blinded Mr. Williams. But this didn't stop Mr. Williams from pursuing his goal to be a minister and counselor. When he was graduated from college, and with honors, too, Mr. Williams said he thought his blindness will actually be an asset in my career. I can never judge by appearances. Therefore, I can always give a person a second chance. My blindness keeps me from cutting myself off from a person because of the way he looks. I want to be the kind of person to whom anyone can come and feel secure to express himself. Isn't that a magnificent living example of cruel, bitter defeat being turned into victory? Defeat is only a state of mind, and nothing more. One of my friends, who is a substantial and successful investor in the stock market, carefully appraises each investment decision in the light of his past experiences. One time he told me, When I first started investing 15 years ago, I really got singed a few times. Like most amateurs, I wanted to get rich quick. Instead, I got broke quick. But that didn't stop me. I knew the basic strengths of the economy and that over the long pull, well-selected stocks are about the best investment anybody can make. So I just regarded those first bad investments as part of the cost of my education, he laughed. On the other hand, I know a number of people who, having made an unwise investment or two, are strictly anti-securities. Rather than analyze their mistakes and join in a good thing, they reach the completely false conclusion that investing in common stocks is just a form of gambling, and sooner or later everybody loses. Decide right now to salvage something from every setback. Next time things seem to go wrong on the job or at home, calm down and find out what caused the trouble. This is the way to avoid making the same error twice. Being licked is valuable, if we learn from it. We human beings are curious creatures. We're quick to accept full credit for our victories. When we win, we want the world to know about it. It's natural to want others to look at you and say, there goes the fellow who did such and such. But human beings are equally quick to blame someone else for each setback. It's natural for salesmen to blame customers when sales are lost. It's natural for executives to blame employees or other executives when things get out of gear. It's natural for husbands to blame wives and wives to blame husbands for quarrels and family problems. It is true that in this complex world, others may trip us. But it is also true that more often than not, we trip ourselves. We lose because of personal inadequacy, some personal mistake. Condition yourself for success this way. Remind yourself that you want to be as nearly perfect as is humanly possible. Be objective. Put yourself in a glass tube and look at yourself as a disinterested third party would look at the situation. See if you have a weakness that you've never noticed before. If you have, take action to correct it. Many people become so accustomed to themselves that they fail to see ways for improvement. The great Metropolitan Opera star Reza Stevens said in Reader's Digest, July 1955, that at the unhappiest moment of her life she received the best advice she's ever had. Early in her career, Miss Stevens lost the Metropolitan Opera Auditions of the Air. After losing, Miss Stevens was bitter. I longed to hear, she said, 
that my voice was really better than the other girls, that the verdict was grossly unfair, that I had just lacked the right connections to win. But Miss Stevens's teacher didn't coddle her. Instead, she said to Miss Stevens, My dear, have the courage to face your faults. Much as I wanted to fall back on self-pity, continued Miss Stevens, they, those words, kept coming back to me. That night they woke me. I couldn't sleep until I faced my shortcomings. Lying there in the dark, I asked myself, why did I fail? How can I win next time? And I admitted to myself that my voice range was not as good as it had to be, that I had to perfect my languages, that I must learn more roles. Miss Stevens went on to say how facing her faults not only helped her to succeed on stage, but also helped her win more friends and develop a more pleasing personality. Being self-critical is constructive. It helps you to build the personal strength and efficiency needed for success. Blaming others is destructive. You gain absolutely nothing from proving that someone else is wrong. Be constructively self-critical. Don't run away from inadequacies. Be like the real professionals. They seek out their faults and weaknesses, then correct them. That's what makes them professionals. Don't, of course, try to find your faults so you can say to yourself, here's another reason I'm a loser. Instead, view your mistakes as, here's another way to make me a bigger winner. The great Orville Hubbard once said, a failure is a man who has blundered but is not able to cash in on the experience. Often we blame luck for our setbacks. We say, well, that's the way the ball bounces, and let it go at that. But stop and think. Balls don't bounce in certain ways for uncertain reasons. The bounce of a ball is determined by three things, the ball, the way it is thrown, and the surface it strikes. Definite physical laws explain the bounce of a ball, not luck. Suppose the CAA were to issue a report saying, We're sorry the crash occurred, but folks, that's just the way the ball bounces. You'd say it's time to get a new CAA. Or suppose a doctor explained to a relative, I'm awfully sorry, I don't know what happened. It's just one of those things. You'd switch doctors when you or another relative became ill. The that's-the-way-the-ball-bounces approach teaches us nothing. We are no better prepared to avoid a duplication of the mistake the next time we face a similar situation. The football coach who takes Saturday's loss with, well, boys, that's the way the ball bounces, isn't helping his team avoid the same mistakes the next Saturday. Orville Hubbard, mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, for 17 consecutive years, is one of the nation's most colorful and respected urban administrators. For ten years prior to becoming mayor of Dearborn, Mr. Hubbard could have used the bad luck excuse and stepped out of politics. Before becoming a perennial winner, Orville Hubbard was unlucky three times in trying to get the nomination for mayor. Three times he tried to get the nomination for state senator but failed. Once he was beaten in a race for a congressional nomination. But Orville Hubbard studied these setbacks. He regarded them as part of his political education. And today he is one of the sharpest, most unbeatable politicians in local government. Instead of blaming luck, research those setbacks. If you lose, learn. Lots of folks go through life explaining their mediocrity with hard luck, tough luck, sour luck, bad luck. These people are still like children, immature, searching for sympathy. Without realizing it, they fail to see opportunities to grow bigger, stronger, more self-reliant. Stop blaming luck. Blaming luck never got anyone where he wanted to go. A friend, who is a literary consultant, writer, and critic, chatted with me recently about what it takes to be a successful writer. A lot of would-be writers, he explained, simply aren't serious about wanting to write. They try for a little while, but give it up when they discover there is real work involved. 
I haven't much patience with these people because they're looking for a shortcut, and there just isn't one. But, he went on, I don't want to imply that pure persistence is enough. The plain truth is, often it isn't. Just now, I'm working with a fellow who's written 62 short fiction pieces but hasn't sold one. Obviously, he is persistent in his goal to become a writer. But this fellow's problem is that he uses the same basic approach in everything he writes. He's developed a hard format for his stories. He has never experimented with his material, his plots and characters, and perhaps even style. What I'm trying to do now is to get this client to try some new approaches and some new techniques. He has ability, and if he'll do some experimenting, I'm sure he'll sell much of what he writes. But until he does, he'll just go on receiving one rejection slip after another. The advice of the literary consultant is good. We must have persistence. But persistence is only one of the ingredients of victory. We can try and try and try and try and try again and still fail unless we combine persistence with experimentation. Edison is credited with being one of America's most persistent scientists. It's reported that he conducted thousands of experiments before he invented the electric light bulb. But note, Edison conducted experiments. He persisted in his goal to develop a light bulb. But he made that persistence pay off by blending it with experimentation. Persisting in one way is not a guarantee of victory. But persistence blended with experimentation does guarantee success. Recently, I noticed an article about the continuous search for oil. It said that oil companies study the rock formations carefully before they drill a well. Yet, despite their scientific analysis, seven out of eight wells drilled turn out to be dry holes. Oil companies are persistent in their search for oil, not by digging one hole to ridiculous depths, but rather by experimenting with a new well when good judgment says the first well won't produce. Many ambitious people go through life with admirable persistence and show of ambition, but they fail to succeed because they don't experiment with new approaches. Stay with your goal. Don't waver an inch from it. But don't beat your head against a wall. If you aren't getting results, try a new approach. People who have bulldog persistence, who can grab something and not let go, have an essential success quality. Here are two suggestions for developing greater power to experiment, the ingredient that, when blended with persistence, gets results. 1. Tell yourself there is a way. All thoughts are magnetic. As soon as you tell yourself, I'm beaten, there's no way to conquer this problem, negative thoughts are attracted, and each of these helps convince you that you are right, that you are whipped. Believe instead, there is a way to solve this problem, and positive thoughts rush into your mind to help you find a solution. It's believing there is a way that is important. Marriage counselors report no success in saving marriages until one, and preferably both partners, see that it is possible to win back happiness. Psychologists and social workers say an alcoholic is doomed to alcoholism until he believes he can beat his thirst. This year, thousands of new businesses are being formed. Five years from now, only a small portion will be still in operation. Most of those who fail will say, Competition was just too much. We had no choice but to quit. The real problem is that when most people hit the tar, things are rough barrier, they think only defeat, and so they are defeated. When you believe there is a way, you automatically convert negative energy, let's quit, let's go back, into positive energy. Let's keep going. Let's move ahead. A problem, a difficulty, becomes unsolvable only when you think it is unsolvable. Attract solutions by believing solutions are possible. Refuse, simply refuse to even let yourself say or think that it's impossible. 2. 
back off, and start afresh. Often we stay so close to a problem for so long that we can't see new solutions or new approaches. An engineer friend was retained a few weeks ago to design a distinctly new aluminum structure. In fact, nothing even resembling it had even been developed or designed before. I saw him just a few days ago, and I asked him how his new building was coming along. Not too well, he replied. I guess I haven't spent enough time with my garden this summer. When I live with tough design problems for a long stretch, I've got to get away and let some new ideas soak in. You'd be surprised, he continued, to know how many engineering ideas come to me when I'm just sitting beside a tree holding a water hose on the grass. President Eisenhower once was asked at a news conference why he took so many weekend vacations. His answer is good advice for everybody who wants to maximize his creative ability. Mr. Eisenhower said, I do not believe that any individual, whether he is running General Motors or the United States of America, can do the best job just by sitting at a desk and putting his face in a bunch of papers. Actually, the president ought to be trying to keep his mind free of inconsequential details and doing his own thinking on the basic principles and factors so that he can make clear and better judgments. A former business associate of mine takes a 72-hour out-of-town vacation with his wife once each month. He found this backing off and starting afresh increased his mental efficiency, thereby making him more valuable to his clients. When you hit a snag, don't throw up the whole project. Instead, back off, get mentally refreshed, Try something as simple as playing some music or taking a walk or a short nap. Then, when you tackle it again, the solution often comes almost before you know it. Seeing the good side pays off in big situations, too. A young man told me how he concentrated on seeing the good side when he lost his job. He explained it this way. I was working for a large credit reporting company. One day I was given short notice to leave. There was an economy wave on, and they dismissed the employees who were least valuable to the company. The job didn't pay too well, but by the standards I grew up with, it was pretty good. I really felt terrible for a few hours, but then I decided to look at being bounced as a blessing in disguise. I really didn't like the job much, and had I stayed there, I'd never have gone far. Now I had a chance to find something I really liked to do. It wasn't long until I found a job that I liked a lot better that paid more money, too. Being fired from that credit company was the best thing that ever happened to me. Remember, you see in any situation what you expect to see. See the good side and conquer defeat. All things do work together for good if you'll just develop clear vision. In quick review, the difference between success and failure is found in one's attitudes towards setbacks, handicaps, discouragements, and other disappointing situations. Five guideposts to help you turn defeat into victory are 1. Study setbacks to pave your way to success. When you lose, learn, and then go on to win next time. Two. Have the courage to be your own constructive critic. Seek out your faults and weaknesses, and then correct them. This makes you a professional. 3. Stop blaming luck. Research every setback. Find out what went wrong. Remember, blaming luck never got anyone where he wanted to go. 4. Blend persistence with experimentation. Stay with your goal, but don't beat your head against a stone wall. Try new approaches. Experiment. 5. Remember, there is a good side in every situation. Find it. See the good side and whip discouragement. Chapter 12. Use Goals to Help You Grow Every bit of human progress, our inventions, big and little, our medical discoveries, our engineering triumphs, our business successes, 
were first visualized before they became realities. Baby moons circle the Earth not because of accidental discoveries, but because scientists set conquer space as a goal. A goal is an objective, a purpose. A goal is more than a dream. It's a dream being acted upon. A goal is more than a hazy, oh, I wish I could. A goal is a clear, this is what I'm working toward. Nothing happens, no forward steps are taken, until a goal is established. Without goals, individuals just wander through life. They stumble along, never knowing where they are going, so they never get anywhere. Goals are as essential to success as air is to life. No one ever stumbles into success without a goal. No one ever lives without air. Get a clear fix on where you want to go. Dave Mahoney rose from a low-paying job in the mailroom of an advertising agency to an agency vice president at 27 and president of the Good Humor Company at 33. This is what he says about goals. The important thing is not where you were or where you are, but where you want to get. A progressive corporation plans company goals 10 to 15 years ahead. Executives who manage leading businesses must ask, where do we want our company to be 10 years from now? Then they gauge their efforts accordingly. New plant capacity is built not for today's needs, but rather for needs 5 to 10 years in the future. Research is undertaken to develop products that won't appear for a decade or longer. The modern corporation does not leave its future to chance, should you? Each of us can learn a precious lesson from the forward-looking business. We can and should plan at least ten years ahead. You must form an image now of the person you want to be ten years from now, if you are to become that image. This is a critical thought. Just as the business that neglects to plan ahead will be just another business, if it even survives, the individual who fails to set long-range goals will most certainly be just another person lost in life's shuffle. Without goals, we cannot grow. Let me share with you an example of why we must have long-run goals to achieve real success. Just last week, a young man, let me call him F.B., came to me with a career problem. F.B. looked well-mannered and intelligent. He was single and had finished college four years ago. We talked for a while about what he was doing now, his education, his aptitudes, and general background. Then I said to him, You came to see me for help on making a job change. What kind of job are you looking for? Well, he said, that's what I came to see you about. I don't know what I want to do. His problem, of course, was a very common one. But I realized that just to arrange for the young man to have interviews with several possible employers would not help him. Trial and error is a pretty poor way to select a career. With dozens of career possibilities, the odds of stumbling into the right choice are several dozen to one. I knew I had to help F.B. see that before he starts going someplace career-wise, he's got to know where that someplace is. So I said, let's look at your career plan from this angle. Will you describe for me your image of yourself ten years from now? F.B., obviously studying the question, finally said, well, I guess I want what just about everyone else wants, a good job that pays well and a nice home. Really, though, he continued, I haven't given it too much thought. This, I assured him, was quite natural. I went on to explain that his approach to selecting a career was like going to an airline ticket counter and saying, give me a ticket. The people selling the tickets just can't help you unless you give them a destination. So I said, and I can't help you find a job until I know what your destination is. And only you can tell me that. This jarred F.B. into thinking. We spent the next two hours not talking about the merits of different kinds of jobs, but rather discussing how to set goals. F.B. learned, I believe, the most important lesson in career planning. Before you start out, know where you want to go.
Like the progressive corporation, plan ahead. You are, in a sense, a business unit. Your talent, skills, and abilities are your products. You want to develop your products so they command the highest possible price. Forward planning will do it. Here are two steps that will help. First, visualize your future in terms of three departments, work, home, and social. Dividing your life this way keeps you from becoming confused, prevents conflicts, helps you look at the whole picture. Second, demand of yourself clear, precise answers to these questions. What do I want to accomplish with my life? What do I want to be? And what does it take to satisfy me? Using this planning guide will help. An image of me ten years from now. Ten years planning guide.